Folks, we are back with the Eclectic Soundtracks podcast. We've been on hiatus a little bit because Skunk had a walkabout. But joining us today is Mr. Chris Duarte. Thank you, sir. Thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. Great to be here with you guys. So first thing, tell us, uh, people might wonder when you start talking what's going on with your voice. So how are you? (laughs) Man, I don't even know. I I woke up one morning and the voice was like really gone. It had no power behind it. And I was like, uh, and it was just really weird. And I actually, that's why now it's squeaky. I feel like like I'm that guy in the Simpsons, that teenager going through puberty. (laughs) But but anyway, uh, I mean, this is the best it's been in like over a week. But I mean, it was uh, I did one gig and after three songs, I was like, why am I even here on this gig? This is stupid. Uh, you know, because I mean, I mean, I, I know they're there to hear my guitar anyway. But still, I mean, I'm so used to having the whole, you know, the voice and the whole package. But yeah, at least my, at least I can communicate at least. Cool. Well, I hope you are able to, um, I mean, we'll get this out, you know, the, in this upcoming week here before uh, Skunk Fest, which you're playing. Uh, I'm super excited to have you playing Skunk Fest. That's yes. Saturday, November 12th. Yeah, man. Coming Saturday at the Railhouse in Kyle, Texas, with an absolutely stellar lineup of just blues rock uh, legends and, and oh, yeah. summers, man. So I'm, I'm excited about that. But uh yeah, so hopefully you'll uh, be able to rest up and and be a hundred percent for that gig. I know you've got some stuff going on with with your uh, with your girlfriend. Tell us about what you what you do with her. That's more like an Americana thing, uh, sort of a little bit of rock thing, and she's sort of venturing off and like sort of a God. What is her name? Uh, this this sort of semi country, but she's sort of leaning towards rock now. She's like everywhere now. I can't believe them. 700 rednecks is one of her big songs. Nikki Lane. Okay. Her name. Yeah. She's sort of leaning in that style now, but before she was doing a lot of country and a little bit of blues. And so I just, you know, I was just kind of smitten with her, but I really wanted to sort of explore that style and sort of expand my horizons, so to speak. But, uh, but it's now it's like an Americana blues thing and she's just really great. She can sort of chameleonize and get into any kind of style. Oh, cool. Well, I would say you're you're kind of like that too. And I wanted to talk about your origins and your background. Originally from San Antonio, Texas. That's actually my hometown as well. No, really, man. Uh, yeah. What high school did you go to? Oh, I didn't. I moved. Oh, okay. uh, I, my there. parents <laughs> drug me away to the to the uh, to college station. Uh, you know, and that's so. Not I too far. Yeah, not, not too not far. Too far. And actually, I moved back to San Antonio. Uh-huh. Um, when I like graduated high school and that's around the time I discovered you is then the mid mid nineties. And, uh, the first time I ever saw you, man, you were opening for Joe Satriani at the majestic majestic theater. Oh, yeah. I remember the like, gig. Yeah. Really cool dude. And then uh, shortly after that, I met you actually met you at the Stafford, which is still a place in college station, Brian oh, college cool. station, Stafford theater. I think that's closed and reopened a bit over different management. Yeah, I, I played I there. So recently and it's great man it's under great management now it's really happening they're doing a great job the sounds great promo promo and everything mm-hmm. so um but i remember that kicking way back in the day and that was the place to go yeah see and whenever an austin band came through it was like oh you right. know so, like guys like yourself and ian moore mm-hmm. and those kind of names you know and and so i remember seeing you there and i was like oh man i saw you open for joe satriani and this and that and i was talking to you. and you were the first guy that ever signed my first guitar 
Washburn guitar. That's great. Yeah, and, and you signed it, and then a bunch of other people have signed it over the years, and I retired it, and uh, most of them are all smudged and unrecognizable because, you know, I played the shit out of it. But, uh, <laughs> but you're on there somewhere. As it should be, you know. <laughs> yeah. So I finally was like, I should probably stop playing this guitar. Uh, and just, you know, let it right. be. Uh, put it super- on the wall. Yeah. Yeah, put it on the wall, man. So. But anyway, so tell us about you. You're from San Antonio. When did you start playing guitar? What initially? What kind of music did you start with? Or, or you know, what was the catalyst for you getting into guitar and music in the first place? And then we'll kind of kind of talk about, you know, where it went from there. Well, as legend goes, it started with Fiddler on the Roof. That's what sort of planted the musical seeds. When Fiddler on the Roof made its network debut, probably back in I don't know seventy three, seventy four. You know, when I was living in D.C. at the time, I was in third grade and uh, I just it's just that that fiddler silhouetted on the roof, sawing out that little line. Mm-hmm. I thought that was so cool. So when school started, I was like, I want to play the violin. I got to play the violin. Went down to school and I got in the line for the for band. And uh, I said, I want to play violin. And they said, nope, too many violin players. I thought the clarinet. I said, OK. So I went back to my mom. I said, Mom, they got too many violin players. They want me to play clarinet. My mom said, no. <laughs> she said she was not going to have a squeaky clarinet practicing. <laughs> I can so relate. I played clarinet. Uh, it was horror of just sitting around a bunch of terrible. So that killing was geese over there. <laughs> the seed was planted, so they say. And so then when my brother got a guitar, he got a, a talk mini classical guitar probably about when I was about 13 or 14. Uh, then I got an acoustic guitar. I was constantly picking up his guitar. <clears throat> so then my mom went and got me a guitar, uh, a Takamini F140, which is like a dreadnought style sure. acoustic guitar. And then I would put electric strings on it so I could play electric guitar. But what I learned on was, um, was Beatle books because they had the chords right over the words, you know, as you're reading the charts yeah. And so that that's how I learned the chords and how I learned how to sort of pick up songs and stuff. And then I discovered I had a good ear. You know, I could pick out things like from the record. I could put the record on and just pick it out, whereas all my friends couldn't do that. And then I started to think, well, maybe I got something here. Yeah. And then I just started really working on it. Man, you know, and speaking of which, so this would have been, uh, what, like this, the late 70s or something around there? Mm-hmm. Probably talking about 78. Right. And so back then, I mean, this was vinyl before the resurgence of vinyl. Like now it's back in a big way, but back vinyl then. Vinyl and eight track back then. Oh, yeah. You lift up the needle, put it on, lift it up, put it on. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's so, like, I yeah, we're spoiled now. It's like, oh, just go to YouTube and any yeah, song exactly. ever or Spotify or any backing track, <laughs> right. you could just easily rewind and play it. Right. Now, back then it was like, right. Exactly. In a way. You know, and even CDs were way easier, and that's kind of where I where I came up. But I think, in a way, like you almost, I think there might be something to that about the 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 players that learned back then. I was talking about this with my roommate, guitar player, I played bands with uh, last night. Actually, is just like that sort of uh, ger- generations past. Not that you know that where you kind of a it was just an implied almost that you got to have a blues background right yeah everyone's got to know the 12 bar blues whether you're a blues player or not and get that Mm -hmm. fundamental background but also just the uh the idea of like 
you know, li- really listening and really focusing and deep, you know, and and paying. And I think nowadays in such a fast paced, just you know what I mean, like everything all mm-hmm. the time. It's it's so much harder to do that, but you had to do that, especially with something like vinyl. You got to be very focused on what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. And back, yeah, discipline stuff. of listening and catching right. things had to be very kind of. You had to be acute, more acute, right? Yeah. So maybe that was advantageous in that for that generation that had to learn that way. Like, you know what I mean? Developing that, like you said, discipline of listening. And I always talk about that when teaching and stuff too. I think it's a lot of times I remember I would just sit with old guitar books, the old Hal Leonard, Cherry Lane guitar books, guitar world magazines and whatnot, and just listen to whatever I was listening to and follow along, you know, right. Right. I wasn't even always playing. I was just fascinated with what was going on. Just, you know, try to pick things out by ear. And I was always kind of an improviser, but I was also very fascinated by just mm. written music too. So did you mm. ever develop that background as well in terms of like studying music and reading and more music theory and that kind of stuff? Or was it always more of an ear sort of uh, ear player? Like where did you go like in terms of your studies? Well, of course it was ear at first. And then, you know, after the, you know, learning all the chords and stuff, the little finger diagrams and stuff on the Beatles books, uh, and then doing the ear playing and stuff. I mean, my first guitar solo I learned was um, it's Keith Richards' uh, uh, Give Me Shelter solo, mm-hmm. that one. But anyway, you know, Black Sabbath, I started getting the heavy stuff because San Antonio was a heavy metal town back then. So right. Black Sabbath, you know, Judas Priest, all those cats, Scorpions, all those guys I listened to. And then I heard uh, Al DiMiola, Land of the Midnight Sun. And I was like, whoa, I want to be, I want to be like that, you know, that's right. But what happened is I, I I moved to Austin in 79 and the bass player that I went to school with, he could read music and stuff. So he started teaching me how to read music. And so I started getting into prog rock and stuff. Yes. And I started buying the yes books and started learning how to play those songs and stuff. And then I started taking jazz lessons which I, I didn't even show up for most of them, but I learned mainly just a little, a few things about reading. And after that, you just, you just have to practice reading, sight reading. Right. I mean, my sight reading is still not great, but I mean, I still pick up solos. I still, I got a ton of Andrew White solos, um, Cold Train transcribed solos that I'll just pick little parts out. There's the Charlie Parker Omni book. Everybody knows about that book, learning little licks out of all his solos and stuff. And that's what I did. Oh, of course I had the real book. Back right. when you had to ask for it, you know, like under the table and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, I'll take that and I'll take that and I'll take a real book. And then, right. oh, okay, here you go. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, so we do that. So I had this thing go, there we go. And this, um, so, yeah, so that, and then I got into jazz bands and I would, I would learn how to read chord charts really well, but still my, my sight rating sort of lagged behind, but still, I, I mean, I did learn how to take a little bit of theory, just the very basics of it. Right. Okay. Yeah. And I think a lot of guys, I don't know if that the, 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 the sort of like, oh, real book, cause it's not cool or something, or, or what do you mean by it? Like I, I what? describe what you mean by that exactly. Because they were illegal. They were illegal. Yeah, because they were back in the day, they were illegal because they weren't paying the copyright charges or the copyright royalties. And that's why you couldn't buy them legally over the because the, the ASCAP police or royalty police can come in and bust you and take all those books. So you had to ask for it under the table. And you you know, and all the jazz guys knew which music book or music store sold the real books. Oh wow, that's fascinating. I never knew that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, w- I wish I had one right here because I'd show you because they have no no copyright stuff on it. It's just that. 
And wow. there's a podcast. There's a podcast my daughter sent me that tells the story of the real book. Steve Swallow had something to do with that out of Berkeley. But interesting. But yeah, it was illegal. Wow. That's cool. I never knew that. I'll have to check that out, man. The, the story of the real book. I'll yeah. Yeah. That, I guess. Uh, yeah. So, you know, what I was kind of going with is like, uh, you know, there's I think a lot of times with like rock players because there's like got to be cool persona like, oh, no, man, I just play by ear. I don't know any music theory. I don't know all this. <laughs> And I think a lot of times it's like, I call bullshit. Like, you know, you have to know yeah, exactly. of like what a one, four, five is in your keys in this quarter. Right, right, like, exactly. I mean, come on, man. You know what I mean? So, yeah, there's the ear thing, but at a certain, there's also a language you just have to be able to communicate. Yeah, in yeah. In, in everything. So, <laughs> yeah. I and mean, I, I, Go ahead. I haven't been turned down from a gig because I couldn't read music, but it makes things so much more efficient when you say, right. what key is it? What's the form? You know what, you know, I mean, my bass player, I just sort of flash the keys to him. You know, I'll tell him, these are the sharps, these are the flats. And I'll just tell him where, what key the song's going to be and he'll know what it is. But I mean, yeah, there's a, sh there, you have to learn a couple basic things that makes things go so much easier. Right. Yep. Um, so let's see, San Antonio. What you? What did you move to D.C.? And I, I, for some reason, I feel like you were in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania at some point. No, no, I was in New Hampshire for a little New while. Hampshire. Okay, that was, but that was like ninety and ninety one. You know, moved up there. I lived with my brother on a summer camp. So one you, of those. Okay, so you moved to Austin and then you went up there and then came. Yeah, back. I went up there. Yeah, came back to Austin. How long have you been back in Austin? Uh, actually, I came back to Austin. Then I went and moved to Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta for 10 years. That's, that's, that's what, what you're probably talking about. Yeah, that's what it was. Because I was surprised. I saw you. It's probably been a good five, six plus years now. And I saw you at Saxon Pub. Okay. And were yeah. you living here then at the time? I was probably, yeah, because I've been back for about eight years now. Okay, cool. And I was kind of surprised because I, I remember you had moved. So I was like, oh, cool. You're you're right. in Austin. And I moved back here because my daughter moved back here. She graduated Oregon State and she moved back here. She was born here in Austin. Oh, okay. So I moved back here to be close to my daughter. Town hasn't changed a bit, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like I'm one of those old guys that goes down the street. Oh, that building used to be that. And right. that used to be that over there. It's None of like this was here. Yeah, the Hill Valley exactly. Mall was all a field. <laughs> old pine I mean, trees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I mean, I just, you know, it, it, the traffic just drives me crazy sometimes. But, you know, that's about Austin. It's just it's just gotten so damn expensive. That's the that's the really hard part. Yeah. But other than that, it's, it's still I love Austin. Yeah, the uh, just the price of everything and then inflation. Mm -hmm. through the yeah. It's just like, how does anybody afford anything? Um, right. So let's talk about, you moved to Austin, you said originally in 79, you were just playing, I guess, the clubs. Or, or tell us, like, how, what was your first band? How did all that start? Moved, moved to Austin in 79. I lived with my, lived the bass player. I went to high school with because he sort of taught me how to read music and how to and do all that stuff. And then I got in a jazz band with him because he knew his, his brother, who was a good piano player. He was playing a jazz band, so we got in a jazz band together reading the real book and all that stuff. Uh, and then I started, uh, I met this guy named Bobby Mack who was playing blues and I was kind of a snob to blues. I was like, Oh man, I'm playing jazz. You know, what's this blues stuff? So easy, you know? And then when I started trying to play it, I was like, I don't sound anything like these muddy waters albums or these Howlin' Wolf albums. Yeah. These guys just sound so real. And I don't sound, I don't sound as sincere or as authentic as that. So then I sort of, put all my efforts into sounding like that because I was getting into a blues band 
and we were starting to tour around the state of Texas. And this was when I was about 17. But my first gig was playing in an Italian restaurant and my, my, uh, my pay was a plate of spaghetti. I got dinner for playing, <laughs> playing background music. We were just playing right out of the real book is all we were doing, reading okay. charts and playing the heads. But that was my first one. And then I got Main Street. That was a jazz band. I think my first paid gig was $35 or something like that. I can't remember. But yeah, but then I got in the blues band. That was like my first band really playing a lot of clubs around Austin and getting out and playing in the state, going to Lubbock, going to Dallas, going to Houston, San Antonio, uh, getting out to New Mexico, Santa Fe and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So just starting to kind of expand on that in the 80s. And you know what? I did not even realize that you had an album before Texas Sugar Strap Magic, Chris Duarte and the Bad Boys in 1980. Yeah. But that's not on like Spotify and stuff, is it? I don't think. Uh, no, you've got to really look to find that. There, there was one, I think it was called Last FM, Last.FM. I think they had it on there. But okay. I was trying oh, to get yeah. on it. You had to sign up, and but I still couldn't get on it. Because there's some fan that just wrote me recently that's like hooked on one of the songs that's off that album, and he, he can't find it anywhere. And we both went down that rabbit hole, the last FM. Wow. And I told him, well, somehow I'll try to get it digitized and get him a copy, but I haven't found it yet. But yeah, I, that album came out because I knew a guy, you know, some of those people that we all knew in our younger days that, you know, dabbled in other sources of income and stuff. Right. And he, he decided to put some money in on me and help uh he knew a guy that had a studio and they recorded that album and it was you know it's 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 an interesting album i mean you know i wouldn't say it's 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 interesting <laughs> that in the do you feel, feel like that album is like a predecessor to what was was to come is it kind of got the blues funk some of the the, the elements that you yeah have? it's kind of got a little bit yeah it's kind of got a little bit of prog rock stuff to it oh really it's wow. got some blues then it's got some blues to it but i mean on a very very basic level you know, I wouldn't say, I mean, I was trying to do some sort of black market weather report sounding song, but it just, you know, I just, I didn't have the chops to really hold that up, you know, but. You I want to hear this thing, man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, it's still for sale out there on eBay. You can find it anywhere oh, from, okay. from 25 to, I've heard people pay as much as $175 for it. You got a proper bootleg out there, man. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So then ha- from that time to when you're, I guess your sort of, you know, official uh, debut that, that did really well, right? Was that, that was Silvertone Records? That, yeah, uh, Texas Sugar, Sugar, Silvertone, right. Uh, so tell us, how did that come about? Who's on that record? Who produced it? Who uh, all that? The people that are on that, uh, it's John Jordan on the bass. John Jordan is now um, uh, a journalist. He works for an online political magazine here in Texas. Uh, I can't remember the name of them, but they're a fairly a magazine of some repute. Hmm. Uh, the drummer was Brandon Temple. Brandon is still out playing yeah, Austin. Way back in the day, Brandon. Yeah. I'll be damned. Okay. Yeah, Brandon, I think, was maybe 19 or 20 wow. on yeah, that album. Yeah, yeah he's around there. everybody, dude. Yeah. yeah. Cool. But he, but uh, I keep hitting this thing. I can't <laughs> believe it. I keep the, the cord that comes out. I'm, I'm gesticulating with my hands. Calm down, Chris. <laughs> I can relate. Okay. okay. Well, anyway, so uh, Brandon Temple is is on the thing. There we go. Oh, well, I've got everybody. Oh, well, anyway, Brandon Temple is on the thing, and um, so uh, how it started is we were I signed up with a, a management company 
pet sharks, which was Cleve Hattersley, which was in Greasy Wheels. Um, he sort of managed me and we started, we would just play uh, Arlington, Fort Worth, uh, uh, Norman, Oklahoma, Lawrence, Kansas, and Lincoln, Nebraska. And we do this run. And then three months later, we do it again. Right. Uh, and then we slowly started to spread out a little east, start spread out a little west into Colorado, into Salt Lake and stuff. And before we knew it, we found ourselves up in Chicago at Buddy Guy's Legends. And Buddy Guy at the time was signed Silvertone. And so Buddy Guy's Legends at this time still had a pretty much a built-in crowd. You know, it would be packed there every every weekend. And so we're playing there. And uh, the uh, A&R guy from Silvertone was calling up, talking to the manager, saying, uh, who's playing there tonight? And said, oh, this guy, Chris Duarte, you should see him. He's really an on-fire sort of Stevie Ray Vaughan, sort of punk blues kind of guy that's playing. And, and the guy, uh, Michael Tedesco, goes, hmm, I kind of like that. I'm going to think I'll go down and check it out. And so he came and checked us out. And then in a matter of months, we were signed. Wow, that's, that's awesome. how that's how it went. Yeah. Oh, okay. And then that so and then you just kept building. Now, once you got on with the label, did they facilitate the record? Or did they help facilitate the next record and or expanding your your touring? Yeah, they did. Yeah, I mean, being with Silvertone under the Zamba umbrella because they were they were underneath the Zamba umbrella. That was like being with a big record company, meaning they had their whole their own in house uh, promotions in-house uh, 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 people out there in the radio business, getting representatives in sort of districts in the area. Every time we go to a, uh, like we go in the Northeast, there would be some guy I would meet up with in the radio stations and he would take me around to all the radio stations, like in about four or five cities. Uh, that was like the old, that was the old time back in the, back in the mid to late nineties uh, before payola really, I think. Uh, but yeah, they had all that stuff going the art department. And, and so they facilitated all that, got the promotion going. And then since it's, it's pretty much an economics game, if you don't make so much or you don't sell a certain amount of units, you know, that's, that sort of dictates how your second album is going to be. Cause if you're if your second album really doesn't make the cut, then they just got to let you go. You know, that's, just, that's just part of business and tailspin didn't say, you know, Texas sugar did 150, 160,000 units and Tailspin did about 35,000. And they were really? like, we love you, Chris, but it's just a numbers mm. game. Sorry. So Interesting. That's, wonder, that's, that's, but it's also such a fickle business and trends and all that kind of stuff. Happens. Yeah. And it's not, it's not even a reflection of the artist because both those first two albums are fantastic. And uh, yeah. And Tailspin Headwhack actually, I mean, that, that, the title track is a great track. And I think that's the album that you have. A, a cover of Thrill is Gone on, and that's a song right. yeah. that I love. And uh, you've got a really cool cover of that, man. I like the kind of the, just the drum vibe, the funky f sort of right. put to it. But then Cleopatra, that was uh, one of your biggest hits, right? I mean, that was a, I remember hearing that, and it seemed like it got quite a bit of radio play. Like that song did pretty well, did it not? Yeah, Cleopatra actually did pretty good for, for being on my second album and doing well for a single. It actually did okay. You know, I was, I was real happy. There was, I mean, Monterey International, that's the agency I was with. And they would send me this um, this paperwork that would show the markets, the uh -huh. radio markets, and I would see which markets I was getting a lot of plays in. And there were certain cities like South Bend, Indiana. They were playing that song a lot. Uh, Savannah, Georgia was playing that song a lot, Kansas City. But I would just sort of study this, you know, all that stuff back in the day before when I was still with big industry, you know, 
then you know as you as you slowly start your popularity starts to wane you start going down the ladder a little bit and you know you get with smaller agencies and stuff that's all right you know it, it doesn't bother me i'm still happy with where i am well and you've always made your living this way right i mean exactly playing you're a, you're a you're a total road dog and always have mm-hmm. been um and so i kind of with what you just said though like i what was it like did you really feel a shift because it seemed like when you caught that sort of success and you really started popping in the mid late nineties and, and were really kind of um, owning all this and signed a deal and did all these cool things. Like not too, not too long after that came the Napster thing and the internet and digital street, everything right. game changed forever. Right? right. How did you, how did that affect you or did you feel like it had much of an effect? Like, what was that like? I felt it had a little bit of effect, but I, I don't think I was touched as much as the big artists. Right. Because I don't think I was pirated or copied as much as the, you know, like the Metallica where those guys are making. I mean, I could totally get it because, I mean, if you're talking about losing a money, I mean, a penny, a copy, and they're getting millions of downloads. Yeah, I can see where they're coming from. Definitely. No. Me, at, at, my, at my level, it only hurt. I mean, it only helped me because I needed to get my word out even more. So it didn't bother me that much. But I mean, I could see the the way the landscape was changing, how it was going to, that was really going to take away the power of the record companies. Right. You know, uh, you were going to maybe lose a lot of royalties unless that sort of shifted over the way ASCAP and BMI gathers royalties, um, which I'm happy to say they they have made a good change. I mean, now they collect the internet royalties and stuff, which is really right. great. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it, me, I think I was sort of a little bit, I shrugged shoulders about it because I thought, I thought it would help me get out my get make me more popular if people copy me more. So were you really uh, like on top of that then, like trying to, to you know hit your wagon to that to that star, or were you kind of like, we'll just see where it goes? I feel like it took a, a while before that all really made sense for an artist. I mean, I guess there was MySpace once upon a time. Was oh, first. yeah. <laughs> I remember when that first happened. It was right. super cool yeah. because it was like, oh, you can go find people in their songs. I found a lot of artists that way and, you know, uh-huh. met people and jammed and got in bands. And um, and then obviously Facebook has kind of been dominating, I guess, you know, arguably ever since and Instagram Definitely. and all that. So uh, I would assume a guy like you, do you – do your own social media or do you have the luxury of someone else doing that crap? <laughs> no, for, well, fortunately, and I'm okay. Unfortunately, I'm not good at that stuff. And I was so constantly touring so much. I just, I just thought I was so old school. I was like, I just got to practice and really get good and start yeah. playing my ass off. And that'll grab their attention. You know, if I'm out there still wowing them with my playing and maybe start trying to put out some decent product and stuff. Uh, and I just, I just never caught on to the Facebook stuff. I still don't, I just, I'm still not on Facebook case. I mean, I'm on there, but yeah. somebody runs that stuff for me. Right, right. Uh, I'm, but I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of just a private guy too, because I mean, I've had all kinds of things, you know, people sort of dig into my life and I just come from that school where I just tried to keep myself private. Um, you know, I don't know. I'm just one of those guys, you know, right. that, that, but when I'm at my gigs, though, I'm totally available. I'm there for my fans. I'll, I'll sign, you know, I'll, I'll sign, I'll be there signing to the last autographs done. Uh, I get out and do promotion stuff because that's where I say when the record comes out, that's when the work just starts. You yeah. Know, I tell my, I tell my label, I don't care where you send me. 
because I've done it all. I played in a Hooters parking lot, you know, at 6 a.m. in the morning for a breakfast brunch or on the loading dock of some electronics firm or inside a mall, you know, yeah. Kitty Mall or something. I've done it. You just send me wherever it is. I'll be there to promote my record. Don't you worry about it. Well, that's and, great. Yeah. As an artist, I think that's awesome. Yeah. I think I can personally say, you know, there's, it has such an impact on me as a fan of, you know, various players and artists over the years of just like when someone takes that time, really gives it their all on stage, which you absolutely do. I mean, you're lost in the moment on stage. Right. It's captivating. And then, but also then the show's over and you're not like, you know, okay, bye everybody. You know, it's like, yeah, you're going to talk to your fans. You're going to, you know, take photos and sign things. And I think oh, yeah. it's so important. And I, there's something to be said for that. And fortunately, I think um, what's really great, even though the industry has been turned upside down and constantly changing and labels, all that stuff's different. Um, but getting out there and playing live and connecting with people on that level is still I think as valuable as it's ever been, you know, especially maybe now, right? There was, that. Oh, by the way, what was it like for you, someone who's known this life? I mean, pretty consistently for most of your life, right? Getting out there and playing and touring and promoting records mm. to have everything shut down and just sort of be locked down. Would it, would it feel like a needed break or were you going stir crazy? <laughs> uh, no, I went a little stir crazy because I mean, that's, it's what I love to do. I love getting out on the road, you know, I, I I like being around the house, but it's like after a couple of months being around the house, it's like I'm ready to get out and get on the road, you know, let's go because I get into a routine when I'm out on the road, you know, I've, I've left all the partying behind on do. It's just, I go play my gig and I, I give it all. And then I go right to the hotel, watch some terrible movie on HBO and get up and repeat <laughs> it, you know, do the long drive the next day and get ready to play. You know, that's, that's my life, but I love it. You know, because every day is different on the road. I mean, it's the same, but it's still a little different. I just love right, it. And then I get to see on my yeah, get to see my friends and stuff out on the road. Sure. Uh, but but yeah, I mean, but then when the, the live streaming Zoom and stuff started taking over, and we started getting some kind of income revenue was coming in, that was nice. So we still felt like we were connecting with people going okay. through Zoom and stuff. That's cool that you did some of that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say with the in regards to touring and, and and all that, I feel like the younger years are like, yeah, let's go and party and all night long and then run yourself in the ground. And then when you get a little older, you're like, uh, hey, all I want is a hotel. And <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, a, a nice meal in a hotel and I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, that's that's how it was. I mean, I was actually, yeah, back in the early days, but every time I saw one of those bands that really partied hard when I'd see them out on the road. I knew they weren't going to be around for, for many more years. Yeah, I'd, so I, yeah, I'd say I'd given them a couple more years unless they had a big song and they broke out on the radio or something like that, which I did see that happen a couple of times too, but that's okay. You know, but yeah, I mean, you just, if you burn it hard, you're going to, you're going to burn out real fast. Uh, let's see, man. Let's, where was I at here? I'm just kind of actually looking through any particular albums that you have. Um, I have love is greater than me romp 2003. I mean, you're pretty, you're pretty consistent. You're always kind of, we're putting out a record every few years. Are there any records that are your personal favorites that you really think, uh, personify you or some of your best work? Or are you kind of once it's done, I move on to something new. Like, what are your thoughts mm. on your catalog? Mm. Well, my standard line is, they're all my children. I love them equally. That's what I tell when somebody says, you know, what album should I buy? You know, and then looking out. But I always tell them, you know, get Texas Sugar first if we got it. Actually, they don't make that anymore. So really? they don't make a lot of my CDs anymore, actually. But I mean, uh, 
Texas Sugar is, is really something special. Dennis Herring did a really good job on it, really captured. I mean, he, he did something special with that, made it sound good. That album was actually remixed by the Japanese. And uh, it was really nice. They did it. You could tell the difference. The guitar, the drums were a little high on, on the original mix, but then they set the guitar in a little bit better on the, on the remix. So I like the remix. Okay. Um, let's see. I'm, you know, I like Tailspin. Love is Grand to Me. There was a couple good songs on it. You know, I liked it. It was okay. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just doing a rundown in my head now. Um, you know, I just, I just love them all equally. You know, some of them have decent songs on them. I mean, I'm just real hard on myself too. If could, could I have made some of them better? Sure. There's a lot of them. I wish I could have made them better. I think we all had that. Yeah. That's your curse. A curse as an artist. You're always going to be like, uh, oh, that should have been too DB. No one else. Right. I've only had one more take, right? Right. One Hindsight. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm glad you but said yeah. that, Vic, because, man, that's one thing about you, Chris. I get the feeling that you very much, you're, you play in the moment. And are you like that with recording, too? Like, where you're, you want to get a full take? Or, I mean, obviously, you can punch and all that. And it was way different what you were doing in the 90s. I imagine those albums were yeah. tape, I would assume. And nowadays, everything is digital. I don't know if you still record a tape, but very few people do. You know, right. so um, what is uh, has your process changed at all just in the way recording technology has changed? I'm sure it's a little different depending on the producer you're working with and what they're trying to bring out of you. Um, but are you... Do you have a way that do you like to approach the studio like live as much as you can? Like that would be my assumption, but I don't know. Maybe you you're very different in the studio and you're okay to put it under microscope and sort of punch through things. What is your process there? You hit it on that. You hit it on the head when you said producer. It really depends on how the producer works. Uh, Dennis Herring liked to record everything. He kept everything. So it was a live thing. And that's how Texas Sugar was done. Uh, Everything was done live. We went to a different producer, uh, David Z did Tailspin Headwhack, and then uh, Thrill is Gone, Cleopatra and Catch the Next Line were done by Gordy Johnson out of Canada. He was with um, a band named Grady that was in Austin for a while. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah good guitar player. I like, I like Gordy Johnson. And so, so had, that's why the songs sound so differently. Like people say, and then you listen to Cleopatra, it's just, they just got two different feelings to them. Okay. Uh, but I, you know, then Mike, I got with Mike Varney, you know, and that was just so different. He, he likes to put up the scaffolding, you know, and do it the traditional way, get drums and bass. If you get a few rhythm guitars, fine, but you know, you're going to come back and do the guitars and vocals later. And that's how I kind of got in that groove for about all the shrapnel records are like that. You know, they're, they're, they were all done like that. I mean, some souls were like pieced together. Mm-hmm. But now I worked. I just worked with Dennis Herring again. Oh, cool! The album, the album's all done. It's been done for a while, actually. I was wanting my record company to put it out this year, but they're going to put it out South by Southwest next year. Oh, cool! But yeah, so it was great to work with Dennis again, and it was funny. I'd gotten so in the routine of doing that. You know, okay, let's get the drums and bass, and then we'll come back and do everything else. When I went there and we did it all, and I came back to do vocals, I naturally I grabbed a guitar. I walk in the studio, a different studio, and it's just the console room and a vocal booth. And I was like, are we going to do any guitar? He goes, oh, no, guitar is done. I was like, what? Guitar is done? I wasn't even thinking about playing guitar. I was just doing, okay, solo. Let's just fill it up here. Do whatever. You know, but it, it, it actually sounded good. 
Yeah, ah, everything cool, worked man. out really good. So I'm real happy about this new album. Worked with Dennis. That's awesome. I was going to ask about that because your last release was it 2016? Was seven years ago? Club. About seven yeah. years. Yeah, fan club exactly. And has this been done? Was it done like pre-pandemic, and then you had to sit on it because of that, or were you? Was it kind of? No, it was done. We did it all last year. Oh wow! Oh, oh yeah. Okay, cool, man. Well, I'm looking forward to that. Let's talk a little bit more about Shrapnel and your relationship with uh, Mike Varney. I, I recently met Stoney Curtis. Have you you know Stoney Curtis? Oh, I've known Stoney a long time, man. Stoney's great, man. Super cool dude. Great. Yeah, man. I'm, I'm so happy to have him come into Skunk yeah. too, dude. It'd be and, great uh, to see him, too. I haven't seen him in a while. Yeah, yeah, cool, man. And he was like, yeah, Chris's, uh, Chris's family. And uh, so how did that come about, uh, meeting Mike Varney and getting with Shrapnel? I was doing a gig in Vegas and Mike was living in Vegas. This was God. This was probably, uh, this was probably right around when I was uh, just leaving Texas sugar. Cause we were playing at uh, the palace, the, uh, the station casinos in Vegas. Okay. And uh, so Mike Varney came out, you know, at one of my gigs, this is just tailspin's been done for a while and they had dropped me. And now Mike was showing some interest in picking me up and rounder was showing some interest. And so, uh, no, Mike had met me at Mill Valley. I'm sorry. Let me backtrack. He had met me at Mill Valley outside San Francisco, a club north of San Francisco. And he was like, wow, you know, Chris is doing like this Mahavishnu thing. He's doing really great stuff. And he had always been really interested. And so then when he heard I was dropped off of uh, Tales, I mean, uh, Silvertone, he sort of stepped in and wanted to bid. He put some bids in me. So I knew all this going on, the machinations going on because of my lawyer. She said, oh, Mike Barney's interested rounders interested so my lawyer said oh well let me take these bids and let's start a bidding war and so she started bidding more and of course you know what i did i went with the person that was paying me the most money and that's what we did we went with rounder hmm. and so like about a year or two later mike comes out to one of my gigs in vegas and we talk for a while we just sort of catch up and then as i'm walking away mike goes hey chris what do you think what happened on the negotiations for the record and i said mike I think my lawyer used you to get more money for me, you know, as a bidding war. And I'm sorry it worked out like that, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, I'm sure that's what she did with you. And she, he goes, that's great, Chris. I just want to hear you admit to that because I mean, <laughs> I was, I was just wanted to be honest with them yeah. because it was just business. And, and that's the way, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to make the most money for me and my lawyer's doing that to make the most money for her or whatever. Course, uh, yeah. But but then after I dropped, dropped from Rounder, then Mike Varney picked me up. So then I started a relationship. I'd always kept in touch with Mike. And so we started going out to Northern California there in Cotati uh, and started working on albums at the Prairie Sun Studios, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great studio. Great gear. Muka runs that studio. Uh, that? Great gear. That's in Cotati, C-O-T-A-T-I. It's up the 101, about 60 miles north of san francisco oh okay cool man. but it's a great yeah it's a small little town but it's a, it's a great little studio it's converted chicken houses uh because that's why they call it prairie sun and then all the calendars they used to do have some sort of chicken theme to them but it's <laughs> yeah like i said it's got great great need boards there great ssl board old equipment all i right. really like the place a lot so we did the next six albums there so yeah, you were on Rounder for the two that I mentioned earlier. Then right, what is Blues Bureau International? What is that's, that? That's, that's the shrapnel umbrella. That, yeah. So that's still shrapnel. Right. I mean, you know what's funny? I never even realized until recently that 
uh, I, I always thought shrapnel because I had all those old instrumental. Yeah. All that shredder, all the shredder, yeah. Shredder, <laughs> instrumental guys, and I was like, "What? They got a blues edition? <laughs> that's yeah, crazy, man." So that's yeah. super cool, dude. I never even realized that. Okay, so yeah, you were with Shrapnel then. You did four mm. records there. Wow, actually, all the way until really recently, the Fan Club uh, album, yeah. right? So actually, I did six records with them. Six records. I, with I think I did. Uh, yeah, I think I did. Uh, let's see. Uh, um, Blues in the Afterburner, uh, Blue Velocity, the live one in Japan, uh, the Blue Stone album, uh, 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 Blue, uh, no, no, uh, God, what's that one? God, I can see it. It was supposed to be like a, like a My Hendrix. Soul, My Soul Alone, Infinite. No, that's a Oh, there you go. My Soul Alone. Yeah, yeah, it makes five. Right. And no, it's the other one. Infinite Energy, six. There you go. Six. Okay. Okay. Named them all. <laughs> what? Tell me about that Japan, live in Japan. So would, how, how did that how was that recorded? And then who mixed that? Uh, that was done by some guys in Japan that we knew this sort of relationship. I had started with all the guys from Bluestone, and we just decided, well, we play this nice club in, uh, in Tokyo, uh, Blues Alley, and they would go down there and they sort of hooked up everything, you know, with their stuff. They recorded it on Pro Tools and who mixed it. I think, um, I want to say I would have to look at the album, but I think somebody in, uh, then Kotati mixed it, okay. not in Japan. I think somebody in Kotati mixed it. They just sent us the files, and then we did that. We paid them something. Uh, they sent us the files, and we we uh, mixed it ourselves. So was Mike Varney producer <clears throat> on those Shrapnel records, or were there different producers <clears throat> and different? Mixers? No, he's the producer in all of them. He's the producer, and then yeah, a, a consistent team that that he works with for for Dude, me and him. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there was. There was pretty much, we used this one guy that was the engineer, and that was pretty much it. It was just the engineer. Wow. So it was Mike, his engineer, and then we used this one guy for a while, and then we got another engineer. The last three albums, I think we used three different engineers. Okay, cool, man. Yeah. <clears throat> you like working that way? I'd imagine so. Just a tight little knit. Yeah, I do, because we all get to know each other real well. We know we know how to finish each other's sentences. Right. We can sort of, yeah sort of look down the road we all know how because you know, we all get sort of know each other but um yeah i mean now that i've gone back to dennis i pretty much like this live approach because this last album i did i only i recorded the whole thing with one guitar one amp and two stomp boxes and that's it you know and now when you so obviously the old the you know the way of like that you've worked with mike varney and so many records are made is <clears> you know do you do you have the song and do you jam live to a click or not a click or to capture the drums and bass live? Or is it just like scratch tracks, then drums, then bass, then guitar, then vocals kind of thing? Or was that kind of the routine with the shrapnel stuff for the most part? Well, yeah, I mean, pre-production, we do all the songs. We play them for Mike and we start making notes and see how we can sort of edit them. Let's do this. Let's do that. And then when we start recording... And of course, it's going to be 99% of them to click tracks because there's a lot of cutting and pasting going on. <laughs> so that just makes it efficient, you know, yeah. just doing that. I mean, like I said, yeah, 99%. There were a few songs that weren't click track, but most of them had a click track. Uh, and, and, and yeah, that's about it. I mean, we, we try to get the bass and the drums down and we try to work with that. And then after that, we, yeah, we'd start working on guitars. I would come back or if we had enough time, I would just stay there and I would start working on the guitars and then start working on the solos. But I mean, Mike would be there. He'd be listening to me playing the solo and I'd be playing and he would literally grab me and have to stop me. Okay, stop, stop, stop. 
okay, let's do something right here. Yeah, it was, it was, it was like pulling the plug on me, you know, yeah. I'm so into it, you know, doing it. Yeah. Stop, stop, stop. You know, so it, it took a little to get used to, you know, rather than Dennis, where it's just, don't worry, just play it all. I'll use a piece here if I want, or just do the whole thing, you know? Right. So it's in us, especially now. He's just doing playlists of you guys right. playing live, right? Of the band, right? But exactly. I mean, I, I'm assuming so. Drummer's got a click, and you guys are playing to him. Is that kind of? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But he's capturing everything live. Yeah, yeah. Dennis Mike. does, and then, and then Mike's capturing oh. everything live. But uh, but still, I mean, if we have to move, so that's why the click tracks there. If we have to move something, you right. know, that's why the click tracks there, so we can cut and paste, and it matches up. But uh, I, I personally would like to have a click track because I know, you know, some stuff just starts moving and I could play just fine to a click track. I've been playing to metronomes for like 20 years, 30 years of my life. So yeah. a metronome does not bother me one bit. I can swing to it or whatever. Right. So yeah. um, it's just bad for me. I think it's better just to play to a click track. But some stuff, you know, I mean, it just depends. I mean, if you're jazz, some cats like that, not ever. But I think we're, I digress. But I mean, yeah, I mean, we're we're just trying to get it on down. And I mean, but I loved when I'd be stuck on a song and getting with Mike and just trying to work through some things. There's been many fond memories of me and Mike just sitting down, working through a song and, and getting the form out. I really miss that with Mike. Cool. Yeah. Awesome, man. I know. I think uh, he's working on a new record with Stoney right now, actually. Yeah. Um. So, Vic, you got any... Uh... Yeah. yeah no uh gear questions yeah <laughs> okay. uh by fin- all means yeah fender guy or or what uh what's going on there what, what's what's your a choice of clarinet <laughs> i'm right what a clarinet do you play chris <laughs> so purpose. uh no i mean uh, yeah i'm i'm a i'm a fender guy but i'm more of a strat guy i okay. mean because I, I play i play exotic guitars now exotic x-o-t-i-c uh they make a bunch oh. of pedals but they've been sort of uh they've been repping me for a while on guitars and so, uh, so I just like the tonal variation you can get with the five way switch and stuff. And so I've been, you know, I've been a Fender guy for a while. So what is exotic guitars? That's a company that is. That yeah, you- exotic. Yeah. They're out of California. They're out of Japan really, but they make their guitars here in America because it just looks better if it says made in USA. I is mean, it, you can get more it, money for it. Right. Is it, uh, similar to a strap? <clears throat> Like the the style, oh, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. It looks just like a Strat, except for the headstock and the body is just slightly different because you know for trademark and patents and all that stuff. So all all single coils. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have pickup preferences? You, have uh, you know, I you know I like uh, I like the Lindy Fraylin ones if there's ones you can buy there. <clears throat> Actually, Exotic makes some pretty good pickups. You know, me, I mean, I'll just make any. I can make anything work. Right. You know, just it's I've always said tones in the hands so I can make anything work. Very true, man. What about amps? Um, I pretty much love my fenders and marshals. I love those things. You know, I've, I really haven't gone off into the boogies or the line sixes or any of that stuff. I, I pretty much have a lot of old fenders and some old marshals and I love them. Keep it are simple. You, <laughs> yeah. Dude, seriously. Uh, well, yeah, like speaking of that, so like what about pedal board? Like what's your pedal setup? Like? <clears throat> My pedal setup, I am still old school. They're strung out, running series on the ground uh-huh. in an ergonomic design, sort of an <laughs> arc. <laughs> really, they are. Because I had, I used to have a pedal board right a long time ago when pedal boards were just starting to get used or people are just starting to make them. 
And it was at uh, Musicians Exchange in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I get there, a pedal went down and I could not get it out of the chain. And I had this meltdown on stage because mm. I, I couldn't get anything working. So I, I was like, I'm never going to have that happen again. So I just, I have all my pedals one in series. I mean, I've gotten better. I used to have like 13 of them down on the ground. Now I only have like eight, you know, but yeah, I use, let's see, I've got, um, I've got the, the boss CE five chorus that makes Leslie in series. I want to know how they go from, okay. Uh, well, let's see from the first the plugged in the first. Okay. I have an ABY box because that splits off the tuner. You always keep the tuner out of the, out of the loop. That's what they say. Tone killers, tone killers, loop uh, tuners are. So I've got that on the A channel and then the B channel is the pedals. Okay. So after the ABY box, I've got, I've got a, a Mutron octave divider, an original uh, mid seventies, late seventies Mutron octave divider. Uh, after that, I've got a Mulan M double O L L O N uh, long delay. I call it a long delay because it's, it, it mimics an echoplex. It even has a knob for a warble. Uh, they're beautiful pedals. They're chrome. They got these uh, engraved designs on them and stuff. Really nice pedal. Uh, after that, I've got I've got uh, a pedal diggers uh, eight one nine pedal. It's the small one. Then I got the larger one, and then the largest one. And as it goes down in size, it gets crazier in distortion. So, but I've got the lar- the small one, larger, and the largest. That's where it goes. And then after that. If I'm with my girlfriend, then I got a, an exotic EP booster right there because that because I only play a small little 64 Princeton amp. And that sort of gives it a little bit more power. But on my, my thing, I don't have the EP booster. I go right to a uh, Boss DD3 and then into a Chorus CE5, Boss Chorus CE5, and, and then that's it. No, you have a wah pedal? No, no wah pedal. No wah pedal. No, I just think everybody and their dog uses the wah. You're right. It's (laughs) you're 100 right. You'll see me and be like, "There's a guy abusing a wah pedal up there." Yeah, it's uh, (laughs) absolutely not being a one of the many Kirk Hammets out there. I have nothing new to offer that. I think Hendrix and Jeff Beck, you know, and a few other guys have done it all. You know, so let them do it. Yeah. And has that been pretty much a mainstay? Are you always trying new pedals? Or are you like, I like my Strat, I like my Fender, and this is my pedal chain. I don't need to try a zillion new pedals. Or, or no, no, I've got a, a ton of pedals, and I mean, it just depends. I mean, I'll put about pedal in the chain. Sometimes I'll have a pedal, and uh, <clears throat> it'll break, and then I'll grab a pedal off the, the chain, and while I'm getting that fixed, I start how, learning how to use this new pedal, and all of a sudden, lo and behold, I know how to use it. I know how to get everything out of it. That other pedal never makes it back in the chain. Right. And so I just I just learn how to use a pedal, get what I can. I mean, I truly give it about, I give it probably about, maybe about a month's worth of gigs. And if it's not really getting what I want, I'll take it out and put something else in there. But no, I've tried a bunch of different pedals. I've, I've got probably 75 pedals, 80 pedals. Yeah. I do. Mainly most of them people have given me over the years. But yeah, because I hardly buy pedals anymore. You know, they're they're just given to me now. Uh, what about like uh, you have specific cables, strings, anything like that? Your okay, strings, uh, GHS, uh, DYs, the the dynamite alloy. What's your uh, gate? Uh, 11, 15, 18, 30, 40, 50. 
That's my that's my gig. Uh, and it's tuned down a whole step too. I go down a whole step. Uh, for Verbeth's gig, I do a 10, 13, 17, 26, 36, 48, and I'm at 440. That's the 440 guitar I said I would bring to the jam and stuff. Right. I have that. Okay. Uh, just because, yeah, it's her songs are in, I, instead of trying to transpose all night long with her, you know, it's just, <laughs> just easy. Just make it 440 yeah, and stuff. Yeah, sure. uh, but uh, the GHS, of course, but they've been with me forever. You know, personally, I like Diodario. Strings only have to last three hours to me and then they're gone because I change strings every single gig. But GHS has stood by me. They've been there for me. So I'm, I'm a GHS man. I, I'm glad uh, what you just said maybe of uh, something. This is really cool. I, this is years ago, maybe late, must have been late 90s. I saw you at Antone's and um, I, I, I hope this was you. I'm almost positive it was you. It was one of the coolest. <laughs> one of the, it wasn't you, just pretend it was you. Okay. I'll, I'll I just you. remember this, man. Like it was one of the coolest things I, I, I remember ever seeing was you broke a string. Hey, did you play, by the way, did you play, um, have you played in the past uh, Epiphone as well? Did you? Yeah, I got Epiphone guitars, yeah. Nope. I think you were playing an Epiphone. and um, Maybe a green Les Paul, sparkle Les that's Paul. That's the fucking guitar. <laughs> that's the guitar you yeah, were playing, man. I still okay, got it. So this has got to be you. So you were playing this guitar. You broke a string. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and I mean, finished out the song, whatever. And then you just start changing your string on stage. And you started reciting, like, I don't know what fucking shakespeare and yeah. dude is one of the coolest things i've ever seen because <laughs> it was just like you rattled out this shakespeare like it was nothing it was in the second you finished that shakespeare you busted into the song right. it, it was brilliant go. man i thought that was so <laughs> damn cool. yeah that's that's my thing i do when i break a really string. cool yeah okay and if i break a string during the song i, I step on the delay put it all the way the longest setting so it, it repeats it keeps repeating that way i can unplug it Grab the other guitar and plug it in. Step oh. off the step off the delay. Boom! Continue the song, nice. and people just get amazed when they see it. Whoa! He, he didn't stop. The song didn't stop. It's a simple trick, but it's so effective. You are the smoothest break string changer guy I've ever seen. What we used to do before that was we used John Jordan used to have a stopwatch, and we used to time myself <laughs> and my my record. I had to have the string in my hand and the guitar. The guitar had to be this, okay. The broke string was taken off, and I had to have a string still in the pack. And, and so I'd have to get it on the guitar and in tune. And my hands would go up like, you know, calving, you know, like, roping like calf. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, 28 seconds is my, that's my record. Damn, dude. <laughs> Impressive stuff. Yeah, I got, I got, I got pretty good at it. You could do a class <laughs> on this. You should offer an online class <laughs> on how to change your string. Fast, effectively, and still be entertaining during a gig. There you go. I would Definitely. sign up for that class. Okay, there we go. It's One of those idea. master classes that they're always advertising. Right. Samuel right. Jackson, right. you know, Oscar winners, and Chris Duarte changes right. right. And mine's the shortest one of them all. Five minutes. You learn right. everything. Who can beat 28 seconds? I that's right. <laughs> wow, man. Well, that's pretty cool. I'm glad uh, that made me think of that. And, um, Gosh, what were we even talking about? String. Oh, that you change your strings. That's amazing that you change your strings after every. Yeah. But you play hard, and I mean, fury. Yeah, that's why I change them because I play so hard. Uh, yeah. The strings are not going to. It's very, very rare that they'll last past the gig. Wow. Okay. Uh. Well. Cool. Um. 
Let's see. Oh. I got to go ahead. I was about to say, also, I want to say I'm not one of these guys that sells a bunch of equipment on, on eBay or anything. I keep all my stuff. I've sold very few stuff. I've sold maybe a couple of guitars, like deserving fans and stuff. But, uh, you know, all the pedals people have given me over the years, I have not turned around and sold them. I still have all that stuff, you know, so if anybody's wondering. Or if they want it back, I'll be glad to ship it back, too. Because, <laughs> right. I mean, I don't want it. If I'm not using your stuff and you want it back, that's fine with me. It doesn't bother me. You're not like, thanks for the freebie. I want to put it on eBay. <laughs> Go under some <laughs> under, name. Under, yeah, under a fake name. Like, just put it under right. a fake name. Victor Ramos pedal for sale. There you like, go. Yeah. All those Mulan pedals I sent you. Come on. I'm in back. I mean, I do have some pretty pricey. I mean, Exotic exotic gave me a bunch of pedals. You know, we'll just, tons of pedals. Yeah, just like sell them under some of their name, but then just say pre right. by Chris Duarte. And right. Kill you selling your own shit. <laughs> <laughs> And I, it, you strike me as like not someone who's. I mean, obviously you're going to be picky about you know having this, the gauge of strings and you know you got your once in the guitar. Yeah. But like you said the, the tone, so much of the tone is in there in yeah. your hands. Um, and then you've got great players who also the tone is in the hands, like Eric Johnson. But Eric Johnson, right. you know, is notorious for like, oh, is that a Duracell battery? Right. And, uh, Dave, do you know Dave Shear by any chance? Do you know oh that? yeah, yeah, great player. Great uh, player. Dave's a uh, great, great player. Yeah, we had, we had him on. Um, I wanted him to do Skunk Fest too, but he had another uh, something else he had uh, already, and he plays with Brandon too, I believe. Sometimes, yeah, he does. Mm-hmm. But he was—we uh, had him on the podcast a while back, and he was talking about playing with Eric Johnson, you know, as his utility guy, and right, exactly the insanity of of Mister Johnson. And yeah, I mean, what about the the amps with rusty? What did he call them? Rusty shoulders? Oh, the shoulders, yeah. You know, he liked the ru- slightly rusty. Uh, <laughs> so. I mean, it, just if it's moved just an inch, you know. Yeah. And things are fine. And I've asked Eric, I said, do you consider that a curse or something that's you're blessed with? He goes, oh, no, my hearing is a curse. Really? It's a, yeah. He, he wishes he didn't have to go through all that stuff. That's what he say. He goes, I wish I can just step up on stage and everything's great. But he goes, I just have to get it dialed in. So everything's right. You know, has to get all things in alignment. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you listen to him play, it's like, okay, yeah. I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Who are some of your favorite players? I mean, you cited some guys earlier coming up that Aldi Miola blowing your mind yeah. going through the prog rock and Coltrane. But uh, yeah, uh, who are some maybe guys we haven't mentioned that were huge influences? Well, McLaughlin, like one of my number one guys, McLaughlin. I mean, and of course, I, I like Mike Stern a whole lot. I remember oh, yeah. when he came out, you know, on the We Want, well, actually, Man with the Horn album, but when the We Want Miles album was like, whoa, he did like some great solos on it. And I'd gotten to know Mike and stuff like that. So Mike's a great guy. Um, let's see. Um, um, you know, uh, oh, uh, Michael Landau. I go through these real bad Michael Landau phases where it just that's all I'm listening to for a while, you know. But, of course, you know, there's all the blues guys, too. Of course, you know, there's the, the Hendrix, the Beck, you yeah. know. And of course, when I say Beck, I mean Jeff Beck. Right. I, right. Love, I love the other Beck. I love him, too. But Beck, to me, is Jeff Beck. Um and all the other greats, you know, Clapton, Eddie Van Halen, all those cats, you know, still, you know, Tony Iommi, of course, one of my huge early idols and stuff. Uh, but, you know, all the blues cats, you know, like I said, Hubert Sumlin, you know, Pat Hare that used to play James Cotton a long time ago. Uh, yeah. uh, Jimmy Vaughn, of course, Stevie, yeah. you know, it goes on. I like Sue Foley a lot. Sue Foley's a great player, too. Um, and there's uh, they're just, you know, they're just a lot of cats you just. I'm missing a bunch of them, but there's a lot of cats I love. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, 
you know, uh, uh, back to me seeing you um, way back, you know, uh, was I I remember you covering, I want to say you covered Hendrix Angel. Is that right? Yeah. I used to yeah, Angel. That, you yeah. know, and I think Wish We Were Here was another one you covered, right? Yeah. I used to Wish We Were Here. Yeah. Should do, it. do you have a, do you go through like uh, sort of having some covers in and out of the set or is that stuff that's way retired or do you, do you just sort of like, how do you approach gigs? Do you just sort of like, ah, here's the set list tonight or do you kind of have a, a sense of what you're playing? Obviously when you're touring on a new record, you're, you're pushing that. Right. Record. Yeah. You're pushing the record. Uh, it used to be, you know, when I had a much better mind going up there when I was younger and I can remember stuff a lot better. I, I used to not have set lists. I would just sort of sort of gauge the crowd and see how the so, okay, it looks like they're a dancing crowd. I'll play a bunch more sort of dancing rock and blues and stuff mm. uh, or some shuffles and stuff. If they're a listening crowd, I'll play sort of the, the, the spacey jams and stuff like that. Cause I'll just, you know, if they're a hippie swaying stuff, I'll play sort of the hippie jam rock jam stuff. But now as I'm getting older, I have to start writing out set lists and you know, yeah, I, I want to put in new covers because I mean, who doesn't get tired of doing the same songs over and over? Right. I, I know John Kay has got to be like, Oh, you know, born to be wild. Here we go again. You know, right. and although I know he doesn't, he doesn't mind it when the royalty. That's the price. Of, yeah. That's the price of writing. <laughs> exactly. <a> hit, you know? <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, I, I, yeah. Cause I get, I get tired cause I've been playing some for so long. I mean, I would love to start playing, I used to play Moments Notice, Coltrane's Moments Notice, mm. you know, playing Coltrane solo. I used to love doing that song, but I haven't done it a long time. I used to play Giant Steps, too. I used to play that song oh, a long time ago. I would love to see that, dude. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I used to do it. I used to, used to have this intro to it and stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun playing I that mean, song. I mean, you should be able to just call that one. No big deal, right? Hey, everybody, we're going to do Giant Steps. Go. <laughs> well, you're right, exactly. That's the way you chase off guitar players that, that oh, just play yeah. by ear. <laughs> yeah. Chase them off the stage. Yeah. Well, I tell you what, if you were called Giant Steps, I'd be like, bye. I, uh, exactly. Boom, backside. But, yeah. <laughs> but no, I mean, yeah, I mean, the, but I mean, there's, there's, there's the standards that I can do is, you know, Blue Monk, you know, All Blues, all these other songs that, that are real easy to pull off. Right. Uh, even Donald Lee, Donald Lee, I still play a lot sometimes, but it's just hard to find some other cats, you know, that can play that song too. Uh, at least in my in my circles and stuff, because you know, I, I mean, I do play with a lot of guys that can play the song. Just some of the local guys I play around with, I play with some sort of mediocre level guys, which are okay, you know. I, they're sort of the younger guys going up, and I'm helping them sort of move up. And so a lot of this stuff is like a little bit over their head and stuff. So that's all right. You know, they're, they're learning and I'm trying to teach them stuff. What do you mean by that? Guys that are played when, you, when you're like not your band, but are you? Talking yeah. Now when I'm going out, like, like I've got a gig down on sixth street, but I, it's the blues jam. And a oh. lot of the cats, a lot of the cats that come out, they're not, they're not, a lot of them aren't pros. Right. And very few of them can play through charts and stuff like that. They haven't done it, you know, but you know, they can play a bunch more cover songs than me because I've never been a cover. I've never played in a cover band. So, right. you know, I only know if somebody starts rattling off a bunch of popular covers, they've got me lost. I'm, I'm never going to be able to follow them. But if it's like jazz standards, I can kind of follow them for a little while. Right. You know? Well, that's but, the thing. Like yeah. those guys were learning easy pop songs and you were in the right. 
back alleys of Brooklyn with the mob. <laughs> Getting the real book. Right, the real right book. pie and real yeah. books. Yeah. <laughs> Skunk, I think you better practice for next Saturday. You better start. Oh, man. Well, I <laughs> no, been, no. Oh, no. I've, I, th- no. This is what I love, though. It's like I'm going to – I want to just have some people get on stage and, and, and have a jam and have fun and feature great players, man. And no, I don't have to be the center of attention. I'll play a couple of licks. Right. Let you guys rip, but I mean, right. say that now, but me. you're going to have that spotlight pointed at you. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll play. I'll play. I mean, I I love playing. You know, blues. I the weird thing is, is I've been doing a gig for two months where I've been on the road playing piano, and I've just barely touched right. the guitar. So which is, you know, terrible. Yeah, man. I have a a rehearsal for my band tomorrow, and we'll be like, well, okay, here we go. You know, but, you know, we're that we're the kind of fun closer, and then we'll have the blues jam. And I, man, after you know, maybe we'll have to have you do "Thrill Is Gone" or something, just uh, since uh, you've got your your spin on that one, man. Or uh, I don't know. Sure. We'll, we'll call. Whatever you want to play? Yeah, man. We'll, we'll call something. It won't be uh, a jazz standard. It'll be a, <laughs> right. We'll the song. Voice <laughs> playing. Side, uh, side of the stage yeah. of the book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me get this real. I'll be in a green room, like oh Christ, like trying to <laughs> right changes. Um, well, man, I wanted to plug, tell us your website, Chris. Website is Duarte.rocks, R-O-C-K-S. I'm looking at it now. I know you've always, no, it's not right. Son of a bitch. Vic, can you Take pull that up? Case. I mean, I just tell people to punch in Chris oh, Duarte yep. by the time. Got you, it. But I mean, there is that basketball player that's Chris Duarte too. It's kind of used. Yeah, <laughs> saw that man. But he's not. Ha- like, he's not having a great career. I was hoping he'd have a great career, and that would help me. I'd sort of tag along on his coattails. But it's like I don't get him. I, I don't hear him mentioned on Sports Center. I was like, damn it, come on, guys. <laughs> dude, you need to do, he's exactly. On he's on your just, fantasy just a, team. Yeah, just mention it. Just like they said, Colonel Parker used to say. You know, he used to call up airports and page Elvis Presley so oh, people yeah. would hear it. So I just want to have people say, Chris oh, Duarte, man. where have I heard that name before? That's brilliant, actually. Yeah, You're- that's what I mean. Man, damn, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, we, well, I have a band called A Good Rogering, for better or for worse. And Nikki Glazer, the comedian, did a bit where she was talking about yeah. wanting a good Rogering or something. And all of a sudden, like, people were sending me that, like, look. And I'm like, oh, I don't know if this is good or bad, but I guess, hey, you know, whatever. <laughs> Well, there was a band in, in South Dakota that played a lot of cover gigs and played the Sturgis rallies, and they were called Zwarte, Z-W-A-R-T-E. And they would always get confused with me because people would always think, Duarte, is that Zwarte? Is that who that is? And they would always think we were related or something. You know, I would get that. So there, there's another thing. People hear it a bunch. That it just It's just that little C, that little, mm-hmm. where they say that ear, ear molar, ear wig in your ear or whatever. Basic marketing, right? Just yeah, ear candy, or whatever. Yeah. So anyway, we've been here talking with Chris Zawarte, the basketball player. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I wanted to say, Vic, if you take a look at the website, obviously we're on there, November twelfth, Skunk Fest. But what a yes. What's uh, what's some other stuff Chris has going on around the country? I know you're touring pretty heavily still for the rest of the year, right? Well, I I do have yeah, I do have a, a tour coming up the end of November, and we're going to go up in the northeast. I know I've got probably Manchester, Connecticut. I've got a private party in New Hampshire. I've got, uh, I think, a gig in Boston and Cambridge. Yeah, I can't remember that club. I usually don't. I don't start to get to learn my itinerary to like a week or two before. So that's when I'll start learning all the clubs. But I know I'll be gone for at least a couple of weeks 
three weeks maybe on that tour. And then I think I have some stuff in late December and then January. I think I'm going to go up to uh, I'm going to go up to Trempolo, Wisconsin, and stay there. Start writing songs for the new album because they want to get me in the studio next year as well. So that's what I'll start concentrating. Is that like just on. a retreat for you? Something about what yeah. There's this ho- this little hotel that these people bought that's in that's in Trempolo, Wisconsin. It's right on the banks of the Mississippi. It's up there, right outside of La Crosse, which is on the border of Minnesota and Wisconsin. And uh, yeah, there were like some dot com people that got in on the dot com game early, so they made a bunch of money and they bought this hotel. And they're just going to let me stay there at the hotel. I'll have the whole hotel. It'll be like the Shining, but oh, on a very, very, very small level. It's that a very small hotel. That yeah, awesome. So they'll turn on the heat, and let me stay there, and then I could give like a, some clinics there. There's a there's a guitar shop up there by this guy named Dave something. He's up there, but it's a it's a guitar uh, vintage guitar place of repeat. I think it's called Dave's Guitars in Lacrosse or something. It's of repeat. But I'm going to do some guitar clinics, and maybe I'll do that master class. I'll do that with string change. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do that. <laughs> They'll put you right okay. next to Morgan Freeman. Is that yes. your class? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> is that uh, so? You're going up there to write, and then are you? Do you already know who you're doing the next record with? Is that going to be Dennis as well? Yeah, yeah it's going to be the same label. Uh, I don't know who the players are going to be, but it'll be the same label, you know. And it'll be Dennis Herring. Dennis has already agreed to doing the next album. Cool. Are your players? How often do you do you switch? Is it just based on who can tour, or is your band pretty consistent? Who can tour? Yeah, pretty much because yeah, I mean, I, I had to move back and get a stable of players, you know, and so I've got probably a stable right now. I've got one drummer that pretty much handles the road, and I've got two or three bass players that can take care of it. The bass player they'll be at Skunk Fest is the one that that's on the album. Her name's Jessica Will, great bass player, awesome. really, really solid. She's not a flashy player, but she's real solid, and she looks so cool. She's real taciturn. She stand up there. You know, unemotive, stoic. You know, nice. I love her though. She's great. Cool, man. Awesome. Um, I was going to ask one. Did you play with Frosty at some point? Oh or, yeah, Frosty was yeah. in my band for a while. I, yeah. I thought so. Yeah, man. R.I.P. Yeah. Great player. I yeah. mean, just an amazing player. Really. Yeah, was truly great. amazing. I mean, I've been real lucky because I mean, I also play with Tom Breckline when when I have gigs around Austin. He was supposed to be on that gig, but he couldn't make it. But Tom Breckline, he played with you know Chick Corea. And Wayne Shorter yeah. and Robin Ford in the Blue Line. That's him on those albums. Yeah, Tom's a badass. Yeah. Okay. Is that? But he's not a touring guy mainly. He's about putting. Yeah, he's he he he'll tour, but it's it's a lot of money to get him out. You know, yeah, he's true. an older guy too. I mean, if I were to have him tour, I would want him taken care of. You know, so it would, it would have to be some good money. Sure. Sure. Do you got any? Uh, uh, European or anything like that plan? When's the last time you were overseas? I'm, I'm sure the label will send me out to Europe because since they have a big footprint in Europe, I'm I'm pretty positive I'll get out there next year. Awesome, man. Uh, well, cool. DuarteRocks.com is where people can find you. I'm going to plug it. Skunk Fest here for a minute, November 12th, Saturday, November 12th, which is going to be yes. a couple of days from now when this actually comes That's out. Right. <laughs> the Railhouse yeah. in Kyle, Texas with Fucking the legendary yeah. Chris Duarte, Austin's own, uh, and his powerhouse trio, and also jumping up with us and jamming at the end of the night. So that's going to be super exciting. I appreciate you doing it, Chris. Um, we've also got Jared James Nichols on that bill. Have you heard Jared play? 
guy's a beast too, man. He I saw him at the Viper Room and Joe uh, Joe Bonamassa got up on stage with him and they were just going back and forth. It was it was pretty badass. And then Stoney Curtis, uh, Shrap yeah, Family, yeah, man, Austin's Jelly Ellington, Finite Fidelity, Bobby Bookout, uh, Caravan Thorn, of course, my band, The Good Rogering. We've got acoustic performances from Natalie Price, Susanna Lee, Darren Lane, my student Ethan Smith. Um, oh man, this sucks. I always forget somebody. Help, Bobby. <laughs> Bobby. I got Bobby Book out in oh, there. There's somebody yeah. acoustic I missed. Who did I miss? Get that list in front of you. Look at my flyer. (laughs) (laughs) Go to the website. Put it in front of me. Who was that clarinet player you had playing? Who was the the clarinetist at Skunk (laughs) Fest? Well, now we got awkward silence while I try to find a flyer. And I found it. Who did I miss? Maybe I, oh Tyler Olfers is kicking it off, man. That's who Tyler Olfers. There we go. And uh, Ethos of Isba out of New Orleans. Uh, yeah. Head Rush, my adult band, will be playing. And uh, yeah, man. So this is just going to be an absolute party. We're looking forward to seeing you crush it, Chris. And thank you so much it's for my joining job. Of course, Scott. Today, anytime, yeah. man. Vic, good to see you, Vic. Good to see you. Yeah, man. absolutely. Looking forward to meeting you next week. All right, everybody. It. It is good to be back, and uh, this has been another episode of Eclectic Soundtracks with Skunk Manhattan and Victor Reynolds with Chris Duarte. Take care of yourselves. We'll see you next time. Later. Later. Hey, folks. That concludes another episode of the podcast. Guest links will be available in the show notes. We'd like to thank our friends at Top Shelf Music for showcasing the podcast on their site. Be sure and check them out at TopShelfMusicMag.com for the latest music news, reviews, and events. We'd also like to thank the folks over at Tragen Guitars, Golden Guitars, Ernie Ball Strings, and Five Iron Woodworks. Have a great week, and catch you on the next one.